You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Um, uh, um, there, there are you know uh, behaviors that are considered sinful beyond that, but I think 613 no-nos is enough. Uh, so, uh, so let's just stick with that. But it encompasses a, a, a very wide range of human behavior, uh, including, as Franklin said, um, a lot of the, uh, the uh, a lot of the features of our relationship with other people, but also things that don't necessarily have to do with uh, other people. Things that might be just between us and God, um, or us and uh, the earth, or something like that. Um, so there, so uh, so there are. So that's I think what Maimonides has in mind here when he says sin, he says it means uh, violating one of the commandments of the Torah. Um, and there are a lot of them. Uh, and so, like Sheila said, it's uh, um, not only uh, the, uh, the, 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 the fact that you uh, sin and you ain't going to do it no more, right? Um, but that you have, uh, have, have transformed yourself as a person in such a way that, um, uh, that you, uh, that, that you um, though you're physically able to do the, um, the thing again, you may be in the same situation uh, that uh, uh, impelled you to do it uh, the first time. Nevertheless, you uh, you you won't do it. Good. Um, all right. Let's go on a little bit more because this gives us more features of what <coughs> of what teshuva means uh, in Judaism. So, who, who wants to continue? Ch- uh, chapter two, uh, law three. Feel yeah. anyone who verbalizes their confession aloud without resolving in their heart to change their ways can be compared to a person who immerses himself in a mikvah while holding the carcass of a slimy lizard in his hand. What does that mean? That wasn't a rhetorical question. What's that? Anybody know what the significance of a slimy lizard is? Is it the? It's a very colorful image. The snake. Good. That's a, a, a good stab at it. So um, the um, uh, um, rabbinic law, based on Torah law, um, is uh, very concerned with uh, matters of purity and impurity. Um, and there are uh, an, any number of things that can render a person impure. Um, uh, one of which is uh, um, the carcass of a slimy lizard. Uh, and impure means. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of like a uh, um, there's something there's something ruptured about your spiritual state that disables you from uh, fully participating in in worship. And the way to become pure when you're impure um, is uh, to immerse in a mikvah, right? Is to immerse in a in a uh, ritual bath. Um, so what? So the the very colorful image here is you're impure and you're immersing in a ritual bath, but you're doing it while holding on to the very thing that continues to render you impure, right? So what does that have to do with repentance? Well, if you haven't, re- if you haven't reached that state where you're not going to do it again, at least in your heart, you uh, are just speaking with uh, forked tongue. You don't mean what you say. 
Good, right? So, so I mean, listen, this is uh, um, uh, something that, you know, um, if, if people didn't do this, you know, no one would be in synagogue on, on the high holidays um, uh, because it's all of us. But, uh, but we have all this, you know, uh, liturgy that lists out all these things that we did wrong and all the things that we're pledging to not do uh, in the coming year. But what it's saying here is um, this is not just a verbal exercise, right? This is a, an exercise of the soul, an exercise of the heart. And so the, uh, the, um, the, the stated desire to change um, to uh, to to um, uh, make amends for what we've done wrong has to be accompanied by the actual desire to uh, to to change. Right, those two things have to go hand in hand. Otherwise, um, uh, you are uh, not going to actually undergo this process of tshuva. Um, good. Uh, chapter two, law nine. Let's read it. Don't all jump in at once. <laughs> Teshuvah and Yom Kippur only atone for sins between people and God. Ben Adam Lamed Cohen. For example, if a person ate a forbidden food or engaged in work on Shabbat and the like, however, sins between human beings, Ben Ben Adam Lamedero, uh, for example, someone who injures a fellow, curses at someone, steals from him, or the like will not be forgiven until he seeks forgiveness from the person he has harmed and makes the necessary restitution. Okay, good. So, so this is an important distinction. It mentions what we were, uh, what we, what we just said before that there are uh, any number of uh, commandments in the Torah, some of which govern our relationship with God, and some of them, uh, some of which govern our relationship with other people. Um, our relationship with God um, is, in a lot of ways, between us and God, right? So, if we want to. Um, uh, um, do tshuva, if we want to turn around that relationship, it's between us and, uh, and uh, you know, the big gal upstairs. Um, but if we want to turn around and make amends for our relationship with other people, what do we have to do? We have to go to these people and say the right thing. Right. And not only say the right thing, but... Believe it. <laughs> but mean it, and then and then follow up on it, right? Yeah, exactly, right? Because remember, you can't just say it and not mean it, because that's like holding the lizard while you're dipping in the pool, right? Um, so, um, so that's that's an important feature of what the what the rabbis uh, think about um, the the high holy day season is that you could spend you know hours upon hours praying in synagogue, but if the point of the uh, of the high holy day season is 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 uh, personal transformation and return repentance um, then uh, then then that will only take care of even if you really mean the prayers it's only going to take care of some of the things that uh, you may have uh, uh, um, done um, uh, uh, that you may have missed the mark uh, on over the course of the year other things and probably if we're honest with ourselves, the vast majority of things um, are uh, in the realm of our relationship with other people, um, which no amount of prayer is going to be able to make up for um, unless we actually talk to those people um, and, and try to, uh, um, and, and try to uh, uh, transform ourselves in the context of those relationships. Um, good. This one, next one is hard. Chapter 2, uh, Law 10. Someone read it? to be 
life but hard to anger. When the person who wronged you asks for forgiveness, you should forgive him with a complete heart and a willing spirit. Even if he aggravated and wronged you severely, he should not seek revenge or bear a grudge. What is that saying? This changes it from you to them. It talks about how the person who wronged you behave. Yeah. And if you were wronged by somebody, the person comes to you and wants to make amends, you should accept those amends and uh, not bear a grudge forever. I would venture to guess that this is the hardest part of tshuva for most people, even though we don't, you know, we usually think it's like, okay, it's really hard to say I'm sorry to somebody. But in a lot of cases, it's much harder to forgive somebody, Um, especially when it's somebody who's like really hurt you, right? But here, what Maimonides is saying is that an important feature of the process of tshuva is not only to seek forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong, but to give forgiveness as well. Right, and so if uh, the if the if the process of judgment on the high holy day season um, is related to this idea of tshuva, of transforming ourselves to you know to plead for the mercy of the court, right? That we also have to be the ones who are willing to dole out the mercy of the court too, right? Um, uh, so this is one of the. Um, uh, uh, I think spiritual insights of Rosh Hashanah because you know we talk on Rosh Hashanah we say it's a, a holiday about God's judgment right the, the the liturgy says it's Yom Hadin God's judgment um, but the language of the liturgy in talking about it as Yom Hadin also um, spends time uh, describing God in the language of the Bible of uh, the of God's thirteen attributes, which are essentially thirteen synonyms for compassionate and merciful. Right, so we're in the same breath talking about God's uh, justice and God's judgment, but also re- reminding God of God's um, forgiving nature. Right, but that's not only really supposed to be about God and us. That's supposed to be about us and other people too. Right, we are supposed to uh, emulate God in exactly that kind of way. And so, part of the process of if we say tshuva is about returning to sort of our godly selves, then to then part of doing that is embodying um, that uh, uh, godly forgiving quality. Very hard thing. Very hard thing. I think also though. When you're forgiving somebody who really did hurt you, I think a certain amount, to be able to really truly forgive, a certain amount of trust is required that they really mean it and that they're going to be working on what they're asking your forgiveness for. So, sure, you know, words from them and words from you are fine. Yeah, I forgive you, but there's, you know, a deeper component to that. Frankly. Well, I would read it also that this is instructions to us. You can't change somebody else. Right. But you can certainly change how you feel. Yeah. If you wrong somebody, then you have to develop that capacity to really and truly forgive. So I would take it that this is more telling us in both instances. Right, and and also um, it, it's telling us if we are on the uh, end where we are asking for forgiveness and the person doesn't give it to us, it's uh, also giving us permission to sort of 
let that go, right? And say, we've done the best we can, um, and, you know, uh, they're the ones being cruel here. So I think it works in exactly, I think you're exactly right, it works in both of those directions. One of the reasons for making forgiveness to others is self-interest, because there is no burden you can bear greater than a grudge. Yeah. So I don't remember. It's usually attributed to Nelson Mandela, although I think he didn't—he uh, he didn't originate it. Um, but the statement was: um, uh, uh, bearing a grudge is like um, wanting to harm another person, and you drinking the poison. Um, and, and I think it does—it does function that way in, in our lives. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to comment on three, four. Okay, so let's, will you read it for us first? Oh, okay. Well, first my comment, and that is, this refers to she. All the others refer to one, a person, you. Have women been selected for whatever? And then I'll read it. <laughs> ah, okay. I think that, that is just a choice of the translator to uh, to try to be um, gender inclusive, but uh, um, because I'm I'm pretty certain Maimonides uses masculine language in all of his. Uh, yeah. I just noticed that <laughs> a person should always look at herself as equally balanced between merit and sin, and the world as equally balanced between merit and sin. If she performs one sin. She tips her balance and that of the entire world to the side of guilt and brings destruction upon herself. On the other hand, if she performs one mitzvah, she tips her balance and that of the entire world to the side of merit and brings deliverance and salvation to herself and others. That's a pretty powerful one, I think. Right? The idea, whether it's true or not, that... Um, every little deed counts um, and can send the world either into uh, bliss or chaos um, uh, or, or in our in, in our lives as well. I mean, that's that, that's really powerful to me. All right, uh, uh, just to finish the, uh, the selections here, chapter 5, uh, law 1. Either way. Thank you, go for it. Free will is granted to all human beings. If you desire to turn to the path of good and be righteous, the choice is yours. Should you desire to turn to the path of evil and be wicked, the choice is yours. This is the intent of the Torah statement. Behold, man has become unique as ourselves, knowing good and evil. Alright, so um, uh, under <laughs> underlying the premise of Rosh Hashanah uh, being a, a, a day of... Uh, of, of being held accountable for what we've done and ho- holding open the possibility for um, uh, self-transformation is the notion that uh, um, we are free to determine the direction of our lives for good or bad. Um, you know, it wouldn't make sense if, uh, if, if, if fate determined it for us. Um, but this, you know, that's a really powerful um, uh, idea to me um, because most of us, I think, um, uh, even though we may not, we may always say that we feel free to determine whatever direction we want in our lives 
in reality, we let a lot of fatalism set in. You know, like I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too X to to change what I'm doing now, or I'm too Y to change what I'm doing now. Um, and so, what Maimonides is saying here is is saying, you know, it's a, it's a it's a sin. You know, it's it's antithetical to uh, Judaism to think that way. Right, and the premise of Rosh Hashanah is that you are never to whatever to uh, change your life, right? And that we have it every year, right? Um, uh, and not just you know when you're kids and you're um, and you're a little bit more pliable, you have it. You, Rosh Hashanah comes even when you're 99 years old, right? So it's never too late to change your life. Um, okay, so the. Um, so um, this this idea of tshuva, this idea of, of return or, or repentance, is is uh, such a major idea, such a big idea, and so important. Um, as you can see from what uh, Maimonides is saying, that um, over the course of time, um, the whole uh, uh, season around Rosh Hashanah um, uh, became uh, part of a process of tshuva. So we begin um, preparing for Rosh Hashanah, the uh, observant Jews anyway, begin preparing for Rosh Hashanah a month beforehand, in the beginning of Elul. Um, Begin this process of tshuva. um, um, uh, Sephardic Jews start doing a series of prayers called Slichot every morning in the month of, during the whole month of Elul, preparing for Rosh Hashanah. Um, we blow the shofar every morning in Elul, preparing for Rosh Hashanah. Um, uh, Ashkenazi Jews do Slichot uh, starting a week before Rosh Hashanah, so we uh, are a little bit more slack than, uh, than, this, than our Sephardi uh, cousins. Um, uh, and, and people who take this seriously um, will use the opportunity of the month before Rosh Hashanah to do cheshbon um, nefesh to do uh, an accounting of you know uh, where they've succeeded and where they've missed the mark spiritually, emotionally, relationally over the uh, course of the past year, and will um, and will actually um, uh, uh, attempt to make amends or do the kinds of transformation that they need to do in order to be able to stand. Uh, before their creator on Rosh Hashanah and say, um, I deserve the mercy of the court because I'm, go- I'm going to be a different person in, uh, in, in the coming year. Um, okay. Um, any questions so far, comments so far? Um, so another uh, ritual that's connected to Rosh Hashanah uh, in the same vein is, uh, is a ritual called Tashlich. Um, so Tashlich uh, literally means to cast away, um, and uh, there, uh, um, uh, the idea is that we're symbolically we like th- we throw our sins away, we like get rid of them, and so we do that by usually throwing uh, pieces of bread into uh, into a river to sort of carry them away. Um, although I've seen traditions of instead of using bread, using like rose petals and, and other things. Um, whatever you can use to kind of uh, um, uh, symbolically show that uh, you're getting rid of your transgressions um, and, uh, and, and uh, trying to start this new year, um, a different person um, uh, uh, with, a, with, with a clean outlook and a clean approach. Um, after so Rosh Hashanah is um, uh, whether you're in uh, the U.S. or or rather whether you're in the diaspora or Israel is a two-day holiday um, for reasons that because of time we don't really need to get into um, right now. Um, but it, it's not because of the um, um, 
uh, incongruity of the calendar between the between Israel and the diaspora it, uh, um, um, is related to some other um, inside baseball kind of stuff that is not really all that interesting. Um, but it's a two-day holiday. Um, and uh, and um, it, it also begins, those two days, um, and then the days that follow are what's known as um, Aseret Yemei Tshuva, um, the ten days of repentance or the ten days of return. Um, and, uh, and, and during those days, um, uh, we sort of continue the work of Rosh Hashanah and of the time preceding Rosh Hashanah of, uh, of, of trying to um, uh, transform ourselves, of, uh, of really uh, working uh, toward uh, renewal and return. So uh, you picture this, so that uh, um, if Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, right, a day where you really have an accounting of, um, of you know, all the charges leveled against you, um, or that you level against yourself, all the things that you may have done wrong, all the places you missed your mark, um, Yom Kippur, which comes at the end of these 10 days of repentance, um, uh, which is Yom Kippur, literally means a day of atonement. What does atonement mean? To make up for your sins. Right, atonement in, in, uh, is, is a little bit even stronger than that, which is not only to make up for your sins, but to be cleared of your sins, right? To, be, to, a, to atone is to, to, be, you know, to, be, to have the slate wiped clean. So what you're trying to do from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is, if I've taken an accounting of what I've done wrong, I'm going to try to get myself to a place where I can, be, um, where, where I can achieve atonement on Yom Kippur. Right? I, can, uh, I can have the slate fully wiped clean, forgiven, all is good, and I'm ready to move on with my year. Um, so the the uh, the Aseru um, uh, um have some unique aspects of them, uh, but in a lot of ways very much connected with what was happening in um, in Elul leading up to Rosh Hashanah and continuing some of the liturgical things that happen in Rosh Hashanah as well. Um, so we add in some prayers in the the liturgy, but really it's a it's a personal internal uh, uh, handful of days. Um, uh, meant to spiritually prepare for Yom Kippur, which uh, follows at the end of it. Um, Yom Kippur. So I think that this is the best way to get a sense of what Yom Kippur is about. Anybody know what, uh, what what people call this in in Yiddish? Huh? A kapota. No, uh, that that's usually black. Um, so this is uh, usually called a kittel in Yiddish. Um, yep. Right. So um, you're exactly right. Um, so this kittel I actually got and wore K-I-T-T-E-L this, this kittel I actually got for and wore at my wedding um, because in the Jewish tradition it is as much a custom for grooms to wear white as it is for brides um, and for uh, the same reason or similar reasons um, which is that uh, white symbolizes in the in, in the tradition white symbolizes uh, purity um, uh, being 
um, uh, free of the, remember I mentioned before that, that the idea in, in the Jewish tradition is that you know, we sort of have a, you know, a pure godly essence that gets sort of uh, uh, soiled over the course of time, right, uh, with, uh, with all the things that we do in our lives that maybe we oughtn't do. Um, and so uh, sometimes we need to sort of uh, wipe ourselves clean. The, at, a, at a wedding, um, we symbolize purity. We wear purity. We wear white because um, the, the hope is that it's a new beginning, a fresh start, um, which is... Uh, um, um, so there's a lot of intertextuality here, okay? Because um, uh, it, there's also a custom of the wedding in addition to wearing white, um, there are other things that are a custom of a traditional Jewish wedding. One of which is for both bride and groom, independently of each other, this is not a hot tub story, um, independently of each other to go to the mikvah um, and immerse in a mikvah on the day of the wedding. The mikvah, of course, as we looked at before, is one of the things that helps um, uh, uh, ritually, spiritually purify you if you become spiritually impure. And it's also a custom for brides and grooms to uh, fast on the day of their wedding um, until, the, until the ceremony. Um, it's also a custom uh, for, um, for brides and grooms to, uh, um, uh, at the afternoon service before the wedding, um, to recite what's known as a vidui, uh, which is a lengthy confessional prayer, um, which is um, a, a prayer that you recite at a couple of other occasions in your life. Um, one of which we're about to talk about, Yom Kippur, uh, and the other of which is um, on your deathbed. Um, it's uh, the Jewish version of last rites, right? Um, because um, the, the significance of, of this is that... Um, is that you're entering into a new phase of life um, uh, with full of spiritual possibility, but you can only really take advantage of spiritual possibility with uh, without all of the um, uh, uh, baggage uh, that you carry with you from other points in your life, right? So, I mean, obviously, we all carry a long sack behind us, um, but from a, a metaphorical perspective, from a symbolic perspective, we enter this new stage um, uh, free of that baggage, which is why um, on, on our deathbeds we also recite uh, Vidui, a, a confessional prayer, um, in an attempt to sort of un, un, unload us of the baggage of our lives um, as we um, enter a new stage of our, of, of our, of our journey. And that's Yom Kippur is um, in, in some ways um, uh, a, a, a day um, practicing for death in that way. Um, or if you want to put it a different way, a day in which we recreate uh, a, a marriage. Um, or if you want to put it another way, a wedding is a day in which we practice for death and have a personal day of atonement. Or right, you, you see the intertextuality of all these things. So Yom Kippur, it's customary uh, to wear all white. Many people will wear uh, something like this. Um, and uh, depending on the community you go to, um, there may be people who entirely, you know, I, I know whole communities that only wear white on Yom Kippur. Um, uh, because Yom Kippur, like I said, the term means day of atonement. Right? And so we wear white um, uh, to symbolize our uh, desire for our and our, um, our 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 faith in the prospect of actually receiving that atonement, actually receiving that 
clarifying, cleansing um, uh, moment in, in our lives. Of course, it can't be without work, right? There's no, um, as the Catholics say, there's no uh, uh, absolution without penance, right? So, um, so that's what the month of Elul and the Aseret Yemei Tshuva um, are uh, in part for is the work of getting to uh, um, uh, cleansing ourselves of, uh, of transgression. Um, it's probably in part why um, we are uh, forbidden from uh, 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 five distinct things on Yom Kippur, um, eating, drinking, um, uh anointing ourselves uh, nicely with like oils and perfumes and things like that, um, sexual relations, and uh, wearing uh, nice and comfortable shoes. Um, usually it's translated as leather shoes, but it really means like nice and comfortable shoes. Um, uh, because um, in part, uh, as the Torah describes that collection of behaviors, um, it's ve'initem uh, et nafshotechem, you should uh, afflict yourselves. Right, um, right. No absolution without penance. Right. That's the that's the idea. But it's also, like I said, it's a day of of preparing for death. So the significance of preparing for death, I think, is as the rabbis say, "Shuv yom echad motecha." You should uh, repent one day before your death. And since you don't know when you're going to die, um, you should do repentance. You should do tshuva. Um, uh, you should try to return to your godliest self. Uh, every day, because you never know when it's going to be your your last day. So Yom Kippur, uh, this uh, um, Yom Kippur is a day in which we confront the reality of our mortality. We say, if I don't know when uh, and how long I'm going to be present on this earth, am I living my life each and every day um, a, a way that's commensurate with the fact that it might be my last? Right? So Yom Kippur is in a sense the day where we're, where we're you know, standing with a, with, with a foot in our graves asking ourselves that question. Right? Um, not coincidentally, um, uh, these kinds of clothes um, are what uh, traditionally Jews are buried in. Right, so I won't necessarily be buried in this one specifically, but I'll be buried in, um, in shrouds very much like it. And when we get to the class on uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, death practices and, and uh, um, that part of the life cycle, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Right? So Yom Kippur is very uh, rich with that symbolic connection to, uh, to death. It's also a day, though, that is rich in symbolic connection to, um, to angels. Right? So angels in the Jewish tradition um, are sort of uh, um, you know, pure white beings. Uh, in, uh, I don't mean white in terms of skin color. I mean white in terms of like the metaphorical um, uh, image of being uh, clean from soil. Um, and uh, beings that uh, don't uh, uh, eat or drink or have sexual relations or wear nice clothes and things like that. Um, and are, and are uh, uh, beings that... Um, uh, exist for one purpose only, which is to serve and extol the glory of their creator. And so on Yom Kippur, we stand for 24 hours, virtually uninterrupted, except for at night you get to have a a nap, Um, uh, virtually uninterrupted prayer. Um, So the the, um, Yom Kippur is really 
the only day in the Jewish calendar in which you have evening prayers, you get to have a break to go to sleep at night, um, even though uh, um, uh, there are traditions to stay up all night um, on the eve of Yom Kippur. Uh, and then uh, from, you know, 8 in the morning until 8 at night, or give or take, um, there is a, a, a virtually uninterrupted prayer service, right? Um, which is not only due to the fact that we're, you know, um, as, you know, so theoretically contrite over all of the things that we've done wrong, or we're, we're kind of beating ourselves up over it, and in, I think, a, a, a richer way, it's meant to evoke the fact that we're, we're playing at being angels on Yom Kippur, right? Imagine what, what would it look like just for a day um, to be our holiest selves, knowing that we aren't really angels, we're human beings, we're going to make mistakes and fail and, and, and do all the things that humans do, but what is the possibility, what's the potential, what can we strive for? What would it mean in our lives to be exclusively focused on being in God's service and uh, projecting the glory of God into the world? Right? That's the question that I think Yom Kippur um, uh, in, invites us to ask. Um, Let's see. What did I not talk about for Yom Kippur? I think that's good enough for for right now. Okay, so let's pause there. Questions about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the ten days of repentance, <clears throat> uh, the month of Elul, the concept of tshuva. What about the, um, the concept that on Yom Kippur we have to Yeah, so it's an interesting... You know, and, and the 10 days when you have a chance to try to ameliorate whatever the judgment Yeah, so, um, uh, so Sheila asked about a book, uh, and uh, the, the Talmud says that uh, on uh, Rosh Hashanah, God has three books open uh, in front of him. Uh, the Book of Life, uh, and, or rather two books in front of me, excuse me, the book of life and the book of death, um, and uh, uh, determines um, who's going to be written in which book on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but uh, uh, the book is not, uh, um, you know, uh, closed, is not sealed uh, until uh, Yom Kippur. So you have, um, so, so God writes your judgment, right, Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. God writes your judgment on Rosh Hashanah, but you have an opportunity to uh, change the decree uh, through the end of Yom Kippur. Um, so that's uh, that, that's that, that's uh, um, one of the teachings that the that the rabbis have. Um, although uh, it, they're funny about it, because they also say that the book is also kind of open until uh, the end of Sukkot, uh, and then they say, "But no, the book is really kind of open until Passover." You know, so um, uh, so they they keep on giving people second chances because it's hard. But uh, um, but that is, uh, and again, going back again to that. Um, um, uh, uh, very um, uh, powerful and uh, um, emblematic prayer of the High Holidays, Unatana Tokef, um, it, uh, um, it, that's the imagery that it utilizes as well. It says, on, you know, on, on Rosh Hashanah, it is written, and on Yom Kippur, it is sealed who will live and who will die. Um, you know, uh, 
if you're if if you're asking me whether I uh, believe that that's a, a literal statement of what's happening, I, and I'm not sure if I uh, believe that that's uh, literal, but that's the imagery that the tradition employs. Well, if, as I sum it up, as, as the Lakota would say, "Hokahe," you know, that's day what I was going to say. It's a good day, Hokahe. It's a good day to die, but that doesn't mean I want to die today. That means I have asked God and have made myself as best I can right with God and if I go, I go. Yeah. Uh, other questions about uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Okay, so just a couple other things that I want to uh, uh, bring to your attention about. The first is uh, that um, uh, I, I mentioned a couple of times the phrase and uh, and and uh, um, it's in the title of the class, um, the, the High Holy Days, or High Holidays. So first of all, um, you might hear uh, each of those phrases used, High Holidays or High Holy Days. Um, uh, they, they basically mean the same thing. Um, uh, it's just that um, uh, holiday, I think, doesn't really evoke the sanctity of, uh, of, of the days, and so um, I think that the, the use of the term high holy days is, is a, actually a more modern uh, take on the phrase high ho- high holidays um, that's trying to like get it back to its um, you know the original power of, of those days um, it's a little just a little bit more clunky to say high holy days than high holidays but you know what are you going to do in Hebrew we call them yamim noraim um, which means the days of awe. Um, uh, which I think captures is more colorful, captures more of their more of their power, um, and uh, uh, because of the 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 significance, both symbolic and in some senses real, of the days, um, they have uh, um, a, a substantial amount more and unique liturgy um, uh, than other days of the year. Much of the liturgy having to do with all the different themes of the holidays that we were talking about before. Um, so uh, we have uh, entirely different prayer books, entirely different Sidurim that we use for the High, high Holy Days uh, because there's so many different prayers for the High Holy Days. Uh, and those Sidurim are called uh, uh, Machzorim, a Machzor. Um, uh, so the word sidur uh, means uh, um, um, fixed order. Uh, machzor uh, comes uh, um, uh, comes from the word um, uh, uh, to return, um, to return to something. So machzor is something that you is sort of like an annual, you know. So you use this uh, on a yearly basis. Thing that's why it's called a machzor. Um, so I brought a whole bunch of different machzors. Uh, with me that uh, you can take a look at um, just uh, different formats and different uh, uh, styles uh, that you can see I'll, uh, I'll pass them along Let's, these are a set, you can keep these together and these are a set, you can look at those the one that's here um, uh, that's tan right here, this is the one that we use in uh, our synagogue um, two of these take a look and pass if you want to um, this is a set. This has a lot of my like notes and stuff in it. Being that. Because um, that's the high high holy day uh, prayer book. 
Does it have a translation? No, it's all Hebrew. Wow. Amazing. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I want to talk about uh, the question of uh, the Torah readings on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so the, the Torah readings on Rosh Hashanah are very... Yom Kippur, every, ho- every holiday, just like every Sabbath, uh, we have uh, Torah readings, right? Um, Yom Kippur's Torah readings make a lot of sense for Yom Kippur because uh, Yom Kippur is described at length in the Torah um, as a day of atonement, right? So what we, how we commemorate it today and what it means is very much in keeping, even though we don't do the sacrifices anymore, we still talk about them and the symbolism of the day is very much similar. So that's what we read on Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, um, we don't read what you would think we would read, which is uh, uh, about the creation of the world or creation of humanity or whatever. We read, um, uh, on the first day, we read a, a sort of um, uh, interesting narrative about the dysfunction in, uh, in Abraham's household, um, his inability uh, uh, to have a, a child with his wife Sarah, um, so he has a child with his uh, uh, um, wife, right, with his concubine, with his wife's uh, maidservant Hagar, um, and then eventually uh, Abraham is able to give birth, or Sarah rather is able to give birth. So she has a son named Isaac, um, and uh, and discovers that she doesn't like Isaac and uh, Ishmael playing together. So uh, forces Abraham to expel uh, Hagar and Ishmael from their house, um, and uh, and then the story. Uh, deals with God saving the life of uh, Hagar and Ishmael. The second day of Rosh Hashanah is a story that's known as uh, the binding of Isaac, right? So the story that, of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and Abraham bringing him up to uh, the mountain um, and uh, um, uh, uh, strapping him to uh, a stone uh, altar uh, and raising the knife uh, and then, spoiler alert, uh, um, an angel coming and telling him not to sacrifice his son Isaac uh, and to, to spare his life. So those are the, what we read on, on Rosh Hashanah. So um, uh, the question is, why those stories? What do those stories have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Um, so what do you think? into being one with God to to bring your life in alignment with God as Isaac was bound and became after all Isaac was much older than he wasn't a child anymore um, so it, it was uh, bringing together the father and the son to a commitment to God the creator and and uh, Continuing on to bring forth the nations. Okay. Good. Other thoughts? The um, the uh, story of Isaac um, shows the depth of commitment to God, but the Hagar and Sarah story, I don't know where that fits into anything except a jealous wife. 
Okay, so what is... What so is the second day, I can, I can see its relationship yeah. to the days of repentance, <clears throat> the whole ten days of repentance, but the story of Hagar, I don't see that at all. Yeah. Because um, he followed his wife's wishes, not necessarily the wishes of God. Yeah. Other thoughts? So the uh, uh, the the um, I'm not being coy here. Uh, the, there's uh, there's there's no one right answer to uh, to to the question. Um, you know the, the the rabbis list out uh, the the reading um, with no real explanation um, as to why. Um, probably the simplest explanation um, is that um, uh, the, uh, the the story of the binding of Isaac. Um, when, when Isaac is spared, um, he's replaced by a ram, um, and we blow the ram's horn on uh, Rosh Hashanah. Um, so uh, there's a connection there. Um, and, um, uh, and because uh, this was the inside baseball stuff that I didn't really want to get into about like Rosh Hashanah being two days, it's considered by the rabbis actually to be one day. It's just one long day. Um, so we're really, in a way, just reading one contiguous story, uh, the point of which is the sacrifice of Isaac um, and the replacement of Isaac with the ram. So we're only reading the stuff about Hagar and Ishmael because it's just like the, uh, the context of the rest of the story, right? Uh, how hard it was to have Isaac and like all the drama that went around having Isaac and giving us a sense of the heightened drama of the story of the binding of Isaac, why it was such a big deal. Um, but I, and I think that the other, I guess, simplest uh, explanation of why we read those stories, uh, or, or especially the Binding of Isaac story on, on Rosh Hashanah, is um, that uh, um, you know it's it's uh, um, uh, reminding us of um, of the, uh, the 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 fragility um, and temporality of our lives um, and how our fates. Are ultimately in God's hands. Um, so, um, so if, if Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, and we're we're standing before uh, the the court, right? Um, we want to be spared like Isaac was, right? And so we read it as a sense of affirmation um, that uh, that that um, uh, God uh, will ultimately not let us be destroyed, just like God didn't let Isaac uh, be destroyed. Um, Maybe that's satisfying to you. Maybe that's not. I don't know. Um, uh, I think that there are a lot of good, you know, so uh, um, the story with uh, um, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael, um, uh, rem- you know, we usually think of, you know, uh, transformation and, you know, religious life or like about, you know, like these like big questions, you know, like, like, why are we here, and, you know, where are we going, and, you know, like, what's the universe about, and how can I change the world, and, you know, how much injustice is there in the world, but in reality, you know, it's hard enough to be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be a good child, uh, to be a good sibling, um, and so we read about a, a small family drama to remind us that, um, that we have a lot to repair in our own lives before we can you know, sort of like really get to the, to even, you know, the next level of questions. So I think that's a big piece of it too, is uh, if, if this is a, 
uh, a day about evaluating um, you know who we are and where we're going, um, it focuses on a small story uh, to um, to to you know not let ourselves lose sight of what's um, what's most probably in need of repair in our own lives. Um, I think that that's a big piece of it um, to me too. Um, the nice thing about uh, stories um, is that um, they defy easy explanation, right? So I think that part of the reason we have these stories is, you know, if you remember from last week, uh, we looked at the rabbinic um, treatment of the um, the wayward and defiant son in uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, and the and um, the way the rabbis deal with that story or that law is basically they, they like interpret it out of existence, you know? And then they, they, one rabbi objects and says, okay, well, if there, you know, if there's never been and never will be a wayward and divine son, then why does the Torah talk about it? Um, and the answer is um, so that you'll study it. Right? So that you'll study it and get reward for study. So there's, there's, uh, there's, there's power that comes from just wrestling over the questions and the meanings of the stories um, and, uh, and, and um, if it, if, if the, if, you know, the rabbis hit us over the head with like a right on the nose kind of story, you wouldn't be thinking about it as much. It would be like, oh yeah, you know, like verse, like Yom Kippur, like, like, yep, that's, that's the right Torah reading for Yom Kippur, right? Rosh Hashanah invites more thought and contemplation, um, and therefore I think an opportunity to read your life into the story in a way that you might not have otherwise. I don't know if that's satisfying to you or not, but that's what. Better than before. Okay, good. That's a that's an improvement. Um, well, it's the, the only Bible is a parable, and right. and as you grow from, uh, I saw a whole different book when I was a child right. than what I see today. Yeah. Because today I look at what is the spiritual lesson that I'm to get from it. And when I was a child, I had no idea what that was all about. But there were literal stories that you could follow. Um, absolutely, I, I think that that's uh, um, a powerful idea that you know the stories stay the same, but we change, and so how we see the stories and we see ourselves through the stories changes as well.